My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. One of my guilty pleasures for a long, long time now has been trashy detective novels. I know you know the type. A hard-boiled cop with a heart of gold stalks an increasingly creative killer through a city at night, discovering new evidence with each victim. Anyway, I love them, but here's the thing about them. They must be absolutely impossible to write now. There has never been a worse time to try to get away with murder in a big city. Are you driving your car to the crime scene? You'll be on film at red lights, via other drivers' dash cams, through entrances and exits of parking garages and whatever else. Are you taking transit? You are on camera, literally the entire time. Maybe instead, you could just slowly and carefully slink down a dark residential street to lurk anonymously outside your victim's house. Yeah, no, probably seven or eight houses on that street have doorbell cameras that got you walking past. And never mind the cell phones that come out of pockets en masse the second you try something even remotely weird with another human being present. The real-life numbers back this up. At least in Canada's largest city, the solve rate for homicides has climbed drastically, coinciding with the rise in, well, cameras. Cameras absolutely everywhere. And on the one hand, solving murders is good. But on the other hand is everything else that goes into having a city in which you need, murderer or not, to assume that you're on camera at all times, to assume that police can get access to absolutely all of it, and to assume that the prosecution can spend way more time and money using that evidence to convict you than you, guilty or not, could ever afford to use to prove your innocence. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Alicia Hashem is a City Hall reporter at the Toronto Star. She has previously been both a crime and a courts reporter, which means she has spent a lot of time watching a lot of video in a lot of courtrooms. Hi, Alicia. Hi. Thanks for joining us today. So happy to be here. This piece uh, that you and your colleague Betsy Powell wrote is, frankly, pretty eye-opening. And I will quote the head of the Toronto Police Homicide Unit, because he says in it, in 2022, if you don't capture a murder on video, that's an anomaly. Can you unpack how we got to this kind of place? And what's he really talking about? Or is that kind of hyperbole? So the reason that Betsy and I came to write this story is we were both covering murder trials last fall. And we're talking to each other about how we were spending most of that time essentially just watching these really long video compilations of various types of surveillance footage 
everything from like doorbell cameras to Toronto community housing security cameras to TTC cameras to cell phone cameras, businesses. Like this is like most of the case. Like this is like the crucial part of it. And when we started thinking about it and asking around about it, it turns out that like, yeah, video is almost ubiquitous, particularly in sort of higher um, resource type cases like murders where they will go and get sort of every type of video that they can think of to sort of try and recreate a timeline. Right. So I think he's right to say that it is an anomaly if there isn't video. Now, it may not be video of the actual murder itself, but certainly the events leading up to before and after are almost always caught on video in some way. When you say you're watching video compilations, can you describe one of those? Is it like you watch the suspect from one camera and then you pick them up on another one and another one? That is exactly it. And it's not just just the accused people. Sometimes it's also through the victims, right? right? Like there's a case that I covered where it was a man who was accused of, of brutally murdering his estranged wife. And there are two video compilations. One is of his day. He goes to an LCBO. He steals some liquor he like is driving around you see him pulling up to like the spot where ultimately the the murder takes place in this driveway that is all caught on um, a neighbor's security camera that looks out into the street and then you have a compilation of the woman's day of her leaving her job at dollarama walking out onto the street getting on the, the bus so you have her on the bus and then her journey walking through a little laneway all the way back to where she like arrives on this driveway and um, is attacked by her husband. How rapidly has this changed? I mean, you know, you're not a grizzled vet, but yet I (laughs) imagine this is still different from when you began your career. Yeah, I mean, Betsy's perspective is kind of great here because Betsy's been doing this longer than me. And she remembers, you know, when the TTC first put in sort of high resolution cameras and sort of that changed the game a little bit in courts because there was video evidence of a lot of stuff that was happening there. The things that have changed that I've seen are there's been a massive proliferation of like home security cameras. Like if you remember, like just even like with your cell phone, right? Like back in the day, you would take like really sort of grainy photos. The quality wasn't super great. You couldn't zoom in. And the quality of your photos on your phone now and memory is cheap. So, you know, if you also think about how we used to like tape over security cameras at like a convenience store or something, you'd be like, oh yeah, no, we don't have that footage. It's from like yesterday. We just tape over things. Mm -hmm. You don't do that anymore. It's so easy to store like lots of footage. So there's just more cameras everywhere. The quality of the cameras are much better than they used to be. So if you see grainy video and stuff like that, it tends to be at night during the day. It tends to be pretty clear. So much so that you can actually recognize somebody and and people love to film things now too. So I think like people are always pulling out their phones. So there's just somebody somewhere has a video. So as video has become, and you use the word ubiquitous, uh, such a ubiquitous source of evidence in crimes, how do police gather and handle it all and review it all? Like if you're going up and down the street collecting doorbell cam footage, you've got just massive piles of video. Yeah. Have they changed what they do to accommodate that? So it is a pretty labor-intensive process. And that was part of why they set up a forensic video analysis unit, I think, back in 2016. And what do they do exactly? So essentially, they collect all of this video and they comb through it. It's literally looking at video and going, okay, I see it, and then trying to go to the next one. And it's just 
literally combing through things, organizing them by like time and trying to come up with sort of a, a picture of what actually went on. But it's a lot of watching video. Do we know by now if this process and the sheer amount of video is having an actual impact on uh, police solving crimes and closing cases? Can we measure that? So I think it's always hard to like ultimately come up with a measure because in any court case, there's like different pieces of evidence, right? So like a video might be one thing, then there's an eyewitness account, then there's DNA, right? And so to say like, you know, we don't know what juries think. We don't know what would be a clinching thing for a jury. but you know, we covered a case where there was a, a horrific shooting at a one-year-old's birthday party. Right, I remember that. And the um, the father of the child was one of the people who was charged with, with the shooting. And that case almost entirely rested on the video taken of the party because nobody wanted to testify. And people have very good reasons for, for that. But but nobody wanted to say anything. No one identified anybody. And it was ultimately the Crown's entire case was basically this video and a f- close-up photo of the, the father that had been shared by a confidential source. Hmm. Without that, there wouldn't have been a conviction. We can co- pretty confidently say that. And so there are cases like that out there. I mean, the solve rate, I think, for homicides was 83% last year. And they attribute that in large part to having video, which means that you're not reliant on people coming forward. You're not reliant on um, eyewitness evidence. You're not reliant on people having to sort of risk their own personal safety or, right. or family connections, things like that to, to come forward. This is kind of a big picture question, but what does it say about the state of our cities and neighborhoods if you know police go out to investigate a crime wherever and they're pretty sure that they're going to get video of basically everything. Like that is, <laughs> depending on how you look at it, that could be a pretty damning indictment. Yeah, I think one thing that I think about a lot is like, you know, we know that it can help solve crimes, but whether it's preventing crimes is sort of the question that I always think about. And I'm not so sure that it really has a deterrent effect, particularly for crimes that are you know not murders or serious violence. But yeah, you know, there are lots of implications about living in a city where like every moment of your life is is on camera. And people have repeatedly talked about the pressure of feeling surveilled, particularly groups that are already marginalized and surveilled. Mm-hmm. You know, I in one of the cases that I covered, the young man was involved in sort of a group of guys who were doing robberies. But they, they said that they would meet in it rather than meeting in their uh, Toronto community housing complex, which has cameras everywhere, they would go to a higher end kind of condo complex to meet because there weren't so many cameras there. Huh. And that just kind of speaks to like privacy experts always say, like, who are we actually surveilling? Right. It's like areas that are poor areas where more marginalized people live. And, and like, where are we like actually going in depth into like looking what's, into what's on these cameras, you know, and, and what kind of, what does that do to people to feel like they're constantly being surveilled? And we know that it can have really negative impacts, just like over-policing has negative impacts. With all these different sources of video available, mm-hmm. you know, people have cell phone cameras 
to your point, uh, cameras in Toronto housing complexes or apartment buildings or stores and like home doorbell cameras, what kind of rights do police have to access it or do we have to simply say no? Like if, if I have a ring doorbell camera and somebody across the street commits a crime, can the police come and take that or can I say, no, I don't want you to have my footage. Solve it on your own. <laughs> I think that's probably where a warrant would come into play. So they would say, no, we have a good, good reason to want this footage and have a judge sign off on it. So mm. they could go down a warrant, search warrant process. But honestly, my understanding is that people are more than happy to turn their footage over yeah. for the most part. That's been the case in a number of cases that I've covered where the footage came into the hands of police because people volunteered it. How often do you see stuff in these videos in court that has already been posted to social media? Oh, that's a good question. It's kind of a mix. So there's obviously a number of high-profile examples that we all know about where it's usually cell phone camera. The stuff that doesn't tend to get posted publicly is stuff that is on like institutional cameras. So things like the TTC, right? Like right. I, I always think about, you know, the the shooting of Sammy Yatim. We had those cell phone camera videos for a long time, but it was only when the court case actually started that we got the TTC cameras from sort of every angle. And that was ultimately, I think, what was most important in that case and trying to determine what happened. Um, But it took a long time for those videos to come into the public eye. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. Once a video uh, is kind of entered as evidence, or maybe before it's entered as evidence, but as it sort of heads towards the courts, there's a ton of, you know, different standards for video recording, right? Mm -hmm. I I kind of remember that some cameras have, you know, the kind of overlaid uh, date and time and everything. Some of them would have, I guess, metadata. Like, what is the standard for admissible video evidence? Is there one? So there definitely is, but it's a really complex area you know how like in tv shows they're always like enhance and then they like zoom in right yeah first of all like you never used to do that but now cameras are pretty high resolution so maybe that does work now but there was a controversy in a case where they did one of these video compilations and the officers in charge of the forensic analysis unit did some of that zooming in to sort of highlight key things and they do this a lot where you're like okay the accused was wearing these like unique stripy pants and, and this actually happens quite a lot. And you can see him wearing the stripy pants later and he was wearing the stripy pants when he was arrested. And so like you can make that connection. Mm-hmm. That can be controversial depending on how the video was manipulated to get to that like zoomed in version. And ultimately, the judge didn't actually end up deciding. The Crown decided not to try and put those sort of enhanced images in. But it was an issue. I always think about, if you remember the G20, there were a lot of people taking photographs of police brutality and there was one particular photo of a an officer striking a man and i think we ran it on our front page to try and identify the officer right but we didn't we never found out who took that photo and a judge said well like we don't know where it came from we don't know if it was manipulated we don't know anything about this photo and he didn't admit it into evidence and it was like that was the 
core piece of evidence and there was no conviction in that instance. Mm-hmm. In the St. Mike's case, as you might recall, um, there was a video of in a locker room um, showing a, a sexual assault that was being shared among students. We know who took that video, but the way that that video came into the hands of police was by a student who's never been identified who shared it with the principal. So there's a chain of command issues too. So in that case, the defense said, well, we don't know who gave you this video. There's a gap between the person who took the video, it being shared, and how it got into the hands of police. And so we don't know what may have happened to that video along the way. And, you know, ultimately, that didn't matter so much in that case because there was a lot of other evidence. But if you're thinking about deep fakes... That was my next question, is like, just as they proliferate, and they get better and better so quickly. Like, there's going to come a time when someone's going to try this. It is so creepy. And if you think about, like, even just, like, manipulating audio, right, which is, like, part of the work that you do in creating this podcast, even, we know that it's easy to, like, stitch things together. Yep. Now being able to do that with video... Totally. It is a huge thing. I don't know that we as a society are ready for it, frankly. And that means I don't think the courts are ready for it either. There are obviously people who can look at videos and analyze them and try and figure out, like, has this been changed in some way? And can you sort of get the original copy of a video and make sure it was sort of untouched? But all of these things get harder and harder to do. And courts are going to have to become more technologically literate. There's lots of questions about, like, how we regulate facial recognition software. And I mean, you can just imagine how useful a software that could track a car would be through all of those bajillion surveillance videos we just talked about. But like, we know that there's lots of problems with facial recognition software, lots of privacy concerns, but it is increasingly common, particularly in private security. The police are not the only people using cameras in a way that impacts our rights and like, our security in a way. So mm-hmm. I have a lot I have a lot of questions about how all of this is going to work, but I think everybody does. Well, speaking of um how the police use it, who vets this stuff for them and are those people also cops? Because you can definitely see this is my natural police skepticism showing up. You okay. can definitely see a situation in which the people vetting the video that may or may not be altered desperately want the video to provide evidence for their colleagues, right? So there's like a lot of people who work for Toronto Police who are civilians who are not actually police officers and often in sort of these tech kind of roles. They may not be officers, but just like video experts. Right. But yeah, I think there's like that's why we have a system that is supposed to have checks and balance. But one of the things that we learned in reporting this article is that it takes defense lawyers an incredible amount of time to go through all of the video that is disclosed to them and try and figure out if there is a mistake, if there's some kind of exonerating thing in there, if there are things that they should be challenging. They might need to hire a tech expert to like look at the metadata and go like, well actually it looks like this video was manipulated. So that takes time, that takes resources, it takes money. And so if you have a lawyer on legal aid who's already not getting paid enough to like do the work necessary on your case, you yeah. got to wonder like if, if our system that is built on this kind of one side versus the other, that's like how we have our check and balance system, if we're properly funding the side that isn't the state, right? Because it requires a lot of tech literacy to do that work. Mm-hmm. And I will also just say, like, one thing about video that we always forget is that these videos usually don't come with audio security videos, you know? 
And so I have done cases where, particularly sex assault cases, actually, because sometimes in sex assault cases, if they take place in sort of hotels and bars and things like that, there will be video, um, particularly the times before and after. And sometimes those videos are very beneficial to the complainant because they can illustrate, for example, the state of intoxication that somebody is in. Right. But they may also also not be helpful and might contribute to reasonable doubt because it's really hard to tell what's going on in a video, particularly if it's a conversation or something more subtle or nuanced when you don't have the audio. So there are lots of complications that also can come from having more video as well. So what happens going forward? Because this isn't slowing down. I mean, during the length of this conversation, I'm sure several cameras have been turned on somewhere in Toronto right now. (laughs) What investments are being made either on the police side or on the defense side or the government side to make sure that we're equipped to handle how quickly this is proliferating? These are really good questions. And I'm not sure that I have all the answers to them. I don't know if anybody does. Yeah. I mean, if you like talk to the uh, folks at the CCLA, they will tell you that our regulatory system is not equipped to like handle a lot of the proliferation of this like new technology. The thing I think about is like you talked about the videos being posted online, right? And I just like every day we have all of these viral videos being posted online of people just like, you know, going about their lives that are like caught on doorbell cameras or whatever. Or if your door is caught on someone else's doorbell, like, you know, do you have rights to make sure that people are not watching who's coming in and out of your house? If it's not the police surveilling you, it's your neighbors. Yeah. Well, now I'm scared. Yeah. Well, just like, you know. It, it is kind of alarming in a way. Yeah. And so, yeah, there are a lot of questions that I think are unanswered, not just on like a law enforcement court kind of level, but just on a societal level about like what we've kind of done to ourselves. Alicia, thank you so much for this. I will just say one of my friends has a, a doorbell camera mm-hmm. and I know he works in his basement. And when I walk up to his house, even though I know he's my friend and I know it's all good, I still feel weird that I'm standing there on camera for two minutes before he comes to the door and he's like watching me from his computer downstairs. It's weird. Well, listen, I have watched a lot of elevator camera videos in in court. And so oh, anytime I'm in an elevator, I'm always yeah. hyper aware because I know... <laughs> that you never know who's going to be watching that footage. If you are committing a crime, it's the elevator where they're going to get you. Just assume that you're always on camera. Yeah. Alicia, thanks for this. Thank you so much. Alicia Hashem from the Toronto Star. That was The Big Story. For more from us, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. There's no video there, I promise. You can also find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can email us, hello, at thebigstorypodcast.ca. And of course, call us, 416-935-5935. Leave us a message. You can get this podcast wherever you want to get it. And you can ask for it on your smart speaker by telling it to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007... TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. 
Split Screen Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.